Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Uh, still working our way through the miracles of Jesus in Matthew's Gospels. Actually, two recorded here in chapter 17. Um, you can almost say three if you look at the Transfiguration. Matthew 17 is page 866 of your pew Bibles. 866. And we want to read this morning from verses 14 to 23. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The evangelist Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always that um, you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Transform us by your Spirit. Lead us to Jesus. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Seated. I think we can all agree that the worst part of a good vacation is the return part, isn't it? Uh, especially whenever you make it back to work, um, you, you, you would like to think while you're gone on vacation, all the stuff that you did before, other people would pick up the slack. What you find is, is when you come in back into your office, your desk, whatever, all this stuff didn't seem like it just got done at all. So your amount of work on your first day back is a bit overwhelming. Right? Um, so coming back from vacation isn't uh, very fun at all. In, in fact, for many of us, uh, we're so tired whenever we get back on vacation, we need another vacation just to recover from it, right? And I, I know several people who will, instead of returning the day before they have to go back to work, they'll, they'll get back a, a two or three days before so they can make sure they can get caught up in some more rest from all the traveling and everything like that. Well, in many ways, what it is that you have going on here is the transition from what we could call a literal mountaintop experience to back to reality. In fact, that context is quite important. In, in verses 1 to 13, we have the great transfiguration, this, this mountaintop experience uh, that Jesus has with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they get a peek into the glory of God and the coming kingdom of God. But at the foot of the mountain, they find chaos, unfaithfulness, and it is a mess. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow the same general order here. Go back to Matthew 16 is when Jesus uh, has the disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am, right? And Peter gives, St. Peter I should add, um, gives that, that statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And in Matthew and Mark's gospel in particular, that's the turning point, Right. That, that's that's where, where the gospel really makes a a shift in its narrative. 
after Caesarea Philippi in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, they, they move quickly to the Transfiguration. So you'll see uh, the confession of Peter in chapter 16. Chapter 17 will begin with the Transfiguration. And then it shows us at the foot of the mountain is the healing of the epileptic. They all follow the same order, and that order is important. Because what Matthew is showing us is that what is happening here has happened before. Can you think of a story in the Bible where an individual is surrounded by a close-knit of friends, climbs a mountain. There he encounters the will and the word and the presence of God. Only to come down and at the foot of the mountain, what does he see? People who know better, who have fallen away. Who, who they find chaos and unfaithfulness. Can you think of that story? It's the story of Moses who climbs the mountain and when he comes down from being in the very presence of God, sees Aaron and the Israelites worshiping an Egyptian golden calf. And that's exactly what it is that you find here. The absence of Jesus makes the father turn to the disciples. And instead of finding faithfulness, what is it that Jesus condemns them for? Little faith. Well, let's begin here with the men, if you will. The men in verses 14 to 18. As they descend from the mountain, that mountaintop experience, a loving father speaks on behalf of his suffering sons. So it says, they came to the crowd. A man came up to him and said, kneeling before him, um, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. The language here of have mercy on my son mirrors that of the Syrophoenician woman who says, have mercy on my daughter. And we are to admit to see more parallels here. After all, it is common in Matthew's miracle stories for an individual to intercede on behalf of someone who is suffering. The centurion on behalf of his servant, for example. Uh, the friends on the behalf of their paralyzed uh, uh, friend who, who's lowered down through the hole in the roof. We've already mentioned the Syrophoenician woman who pleads on behalf of her daughter. And now we have a father pleading on behalf of his demonized son. Now, again, notice the similarities between the transfiguration and this exorcism in both, the father takes the center stage. So as the disciples with Jesus uh, climb up the mountain and we have this, this scene of transfiguration, it is the father who speaks. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In both, the father speaks on behalf of the son, right? And in both, the son is afflicted in the end. Well, with that said, uh, we see that what it is that the boy has in verse 15. He, he suffers from seizures. He suffers terribly, often falling into the fire or into the water. Now, this description of fits and seizures, along with the details we get in uh, the parallel synoptic accounts, um, most, most scholars agree that what he has here um, is, is pretty clear. The other Gospels will call it being moonstruck. It's where we get the term lunatic. 
Uh, it was viewed that, uh, oftentimes believed that the sun, particularly if it was a full moon, would affect uh, people's mental state. And so that's where you get lunatics from. That's the word used here is that he is moonstruck. And it was believed at the time, uh, again, it was caused by the moon. But this condition uh, threatened to kill him on multiple conditions. It's a type of epilepsy, most would, would say. And so he would fall into the fire, fall into the water. Now, this father is seeking Jesus, uh, is likely seeking out Jesus, but when Jesus is gone, he has to settle for the disciples. Again, that's, that's what happens to Aaron, right? People are seeking Moses. Where is Moses? What happened to Moses? Where, where, what, what's going on here? And when, when they can't find Moses, they then turn to Aaron. So to hear this father likely seeking Jesus when he can't find Jesus turns to the disciples, now, we, we won't take the time, but Jesus has already commissioned the disciples to perform such exorcisms. You can go back in the earlier, I think it's chapter 11, where that is explored. And, but however, according to verse 16, they try to cast out the demon and they fail miserably. And so Jesus comes down and we get his response, right? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Now, that makes sense if you remember the disciples are probably teenagers. Does it make sense now, right? Every parent of teenagers is like, oh, yeah, I get it. Okay, <laughs> I'm joking, teenagers, slightly. And um, how long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So he rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Clearly, Jesus is exhaust, exalted, exhausted here, rather. But however, he speaks... Uh, this is an act of creation. We've talked about that in other miracle stories. And the boy is instantly healed. Let's move quickly to the mountain in verses 19 to 23. Disciples have an obvious question that they raise. Um, in verse 19, they come to him privately because they've been humbled publicly. Why couldn't we do that? Right? How come you could do it so easily and, and we couldn't? What is it that you have that we don't have other than being the divine son of God? You told us that we could do these things and we've done this in the past. Why couldn't we do it here? And Jesus' answer is significant. You have such little faith. If you've been tracking along with our study through Matthew's gospel, this phrase, little faith, has shown up multiple times. It is first stated in Matthew chapter 6, if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Here again, the context has to do with the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about anxiety. Why are you so anxious? Won't God take care of all this? You have little faith. In chapter 8, remember that this is the calming of the storm, the first calming of the storm. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? So he gets up and he rebukes the winds and the seas. In chapter 14, this is when uh, Jesus and Peter walk on water. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took Peter um, a hold of him and said, you have little faith. Why, why did you doubt? And finally, in chapter 16, um, Jesus, aware of um, this is the second feeding of the multitude. He's aware of this. He says, you men of little faith, why did you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? You see the pattern that is going on here. It, it, is, it is where, where uh, there is uh, the possibility and, 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 and the ability to do things, but because of the lack of faith, they, they come up short. Peter 
show that he can indeed with faith walk on water, but he, he simply falls apart for the lack of faith. They, he, he, they, they know that Jesus can feed a multitude, but because of the size of the crowd, they begin to have a lack of faith. And so in all instances, Jesus speaks of little faith. When the disciples see the impossible and assume it is therefore impossible. But that which is impossible with man, Matthew wants us to see, is always possible with God. And so he uses this metaphor of a mustard seed. Now, this is developed more in chapter 13 in his kingdom parables. And we looked at that parable last year, right around this time last year. So I don't want to spend forever on it. But let us just note this. And I think this is where we make a mistake here. Jesus doesn't want them to have the faith of a mustard seed. That is to say, what he usually has is, well, if I just settle for a little bit, I'd be okay. That's not the point of the mustard seed here. The point of the mustard seed is that though it is small, it grows to a great size. So Jesus looked at them and said that if you had the faith of a, little, of a mustard seed, then you would see it continue to grow and you would do mighty things. The problem is your faith isn't even the size of a little mustard seed. Therefore, it isn't, going to be, it isn't going to grow. So what Jesus is pointing out here is a growing faith, a mustard seed faith that can do the impossible. Mountain moving was often a Jewish idiom that described doing the impossible. So here you have is, is Jesus at the top of the mountain demonstrating for us all to see, particularly the readers, who he is and what will become of him. The kingdom of God will come even when it seems impossible. But down there is the look of impossibility. So when Jesus comes down, he has exposed his, who he really is. And there's no denying to the inner circle who, who he is. And here's a problem. And they're asking, why can't we solve this problem? The answer is, you forgot your experience on the mountain. Do you not see that with that and the gift he gives you, you can do the impossible. You can move these sort of mountains. And this leads finally to the message, verses 22 and 23. Now, in order again to understand this, we we have to understand the context that Matthew writes this, this story. Remember, the Bible is not a collection of stories. It's not like reading nursery rhymes. Rather, one bleeds into the other and is part of a broad narrative. That's why we're going through our daily readings together, uh, which, again, if you haven't picked up, grab one here in the front pew. Two contexts to understand what Jesus is doing here. First of all is, of course, the transfiguration. As we've seen, Matthew is retelling the story of Moses and Aaron. At Mount Sinai, Moses encounters God, finds chaos at the foot of the mountain. So too, Jesus is in her three, having an amazing encounter on a mountain, only to return to see brokenness and sorrow. What is different is that Moses, that for Moses, God remained at the top of the mountain. Here, God comes down and brings order out of chaos by crushing the demons. So again, with Moses, Moses has to go up to the mountain to encounter God. Here, Jesus invites his disciples with him, where there on the mountain they encounter God. But in Jesus, God comes down from the mountain. 
That is what the kingdom of God is. And the first thing they have to address when they come down from the mountain isn't idolatry, though it's hinted at with little faith and faithless generation language. It is rather the crushing of the head of the serpents. That this is a mountain that only the Savior can move. And if you would have faith, you would see it moved. So not only is the transfiguration an important context, but so is the cross. Since chapter 16, Matthew has made a serious pivot in his gospel. For the first 15 and a half chapters, it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. For example, when John the Baptist comes, what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount is very much about the king and the kingdom. With Jesus' uh, kingdom parables in chapter 13, the kingdom of God is like a sower who went out to sow seed. kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed. kingdom of God is like a little leaven uh, put in the bread. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. But starting in chapter 16, there is less kingdom language, and it's been replaced with cross language. So here in verse 22 and 23 is the second direct foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So you have the casting out of the uh, demon, the epileptic, and it says that uh, Jesus tells him the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And that context is so important given what it is he just did. And they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. Remember, the demon wanted to kill the epileptic but couldn't. These men will kill the son of man. And they respond by being distressed. Again, this is the second direct foreshadowing of the cross. You go back to chapter 16, right after you get the, the confession of Peter, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus immediately tells them that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things um, and be killed. But the third day he will rise again. Now, these are two direct references to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But right in the middle of these two is another reference. Look at verse 9 um, here on the uh, transfiguration. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. You see? Within about a chapter's worth of, of, of material, we have three clear references to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And on this third reference, it is in the context of Christ unveiling his glory and then conquering even the demons. So then, what is the point? I think the point of this passage is for us to see the glory and the power of God is best demonstrated through the cross. The glory and the power of God is best demonstrated through the cross. On Good Friday, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed in Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth. His assassin, immediately after 
taking the fatal shot, uh, went on a run. His plan was to uh, end up in the South. And he thought that having killed who he believed to be the tyrant, Abraham Lincoln, the South would rise again. After all, the South, Robert E. Lee's uh, uh, soldiers had officially surrendered just days prior. And so killing the president will cause the South to be rejuvenated and declare war yet again. But this time with the tyrant killed, the Union had no chance. By the way, also remember that part of the conspiracy was to kill the vice president and I believe the secretary of defense. Don't quote me on that. Is it defense? Not the secretary of state. I will always confuse those two with that story. So, so you would have a, a, a falling apart of the Union government. So that, that was his, his vision. So he's in Maryland, he, and then he's trying to get down to, to Virginia. The problem is, is he, he, he broke his leg when he jumped off the balcony. And so he was limited in his ability to be transported. So he had to wait on a horse and everything else. He's hiding by some bushes near a swamp in Maryland. And he, he's gone days without food. And what he wants more than anything, even more than food and drink, were newspapers because he was waiting for all the national newspapers to announce that he john wilkes booth was a hero who did the nation a favor so there he was hiding for days massive manhunt for the the man who killed the president and his friend brings him those newspapers about a half a dozen of them and what he finds is appalling. Instead of being touted as a hero, he's named the villain. And instead of the South rising, the South condemned him. And the papers celebrate the life and the work of Abraham Lincoln, whose life was taken tragically by this villain. So Lincoln was the hero Booth, the villain. You know, those who murdered Jesus in, in, in a very similar way thought they were forever crucifying a small movement. The death of Jesus would mean the death of the movement, and there was nothing else they would need to worry about. But what we see in the New Testament is the cross is the power and the glory of God. It's so vital we don't miss this as Christians. It is the cross which is the power and glory of God. How does this work out for us? How does God demonstrate his power and glory through the cross? Well, first of all, we need to see that at the cross, Jesus saves sinners. Paul writes in Colossians 2.13, You who were dead in your trespasses and circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you read Colossians 2, we'll come back and look at another verse there. It is clear, it is the context of the cross. At the cross is the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is not the joining of a team. It is a rescue operation. We are sinners by nature. Thus, we cannot rescue ourselves. So what we need is a Savior to transform, to resurrect, to forgive, and to save us. And at the cross, sinners, all sinners are offered grace. The salvation is the evidence of God's power and glory in, in, belie in a believer's life that comes by faith. Because by faith we come and we say, there is no hope for us. 
like this father who says, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my son. Because there is no hope for us, even among your disciples. He, like us, need to see that the power and glory of God is seen in the salvation of my soul and in the salvation of sinners globally. There is no greater work that we can be involved in than pointing people to Jesus. Secondly, we see that at the cross, Jesus defeats sin. We see this in John chapter 8, where he says, Truly, I tell you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. You see the language there is, is that you can either be a slave to sin or you can be free in Christ. So at the cross, we are given liberation. We are given redemption. Again, the believer does not merely receive grace. We receive victory of Christ over our sin. And this does not mean that we cease sinning when we come to Jesus. But it does mean that he is the anchor of faith with the work of the Spirit and the grace of God we can be moved to greater righteousness. Those whom God saves, he will sanctify. Thus, not only is salvation evidence of God's glory and power in the life of the believer, holiness is the evidence of God's power and glory in the life of the believer, that he would turn sinners into saints, and he would turn us into the image of his Son. Thirdly, Jesus conquers death. You'll notice in these three references of the death of Jesus, he references his resurrection. The story doesn't end at the cross. It is fulfilled at the empty tomb. I will go to Jerusalem. I will suffer many things, but I will rise again. Our greatest fear is death. The mystery of the unknown, the fear of final judgment, the uncertainty of it all. You can travel the world and visit the graves of every great philosopher, moral teacher, rabbi, and religious leader, and you will find a rotting body under the ground. But you can go to Jerusalem, and there is a grave where death itself has no power to fill. If the wages of sin is death, and the judgment for our sin is, 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 is judgment itself, then there can be no peace until death is finally defeated. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. He says, but when, uh, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, or even O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus Christ offers us everlasting life from the moment of belief. We in Christ have already died. We in Christ have already been raised in a very real sense. What then do we have to fear? Resurrection is evidence of God's power and glory in the believer's life that can only come with a mustard seed of faith 
that grows. Finally, Jesus disarms the devil. We can go back to Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. In, in the imagery of Colossians is that of a Roman general following a victory. They would have a parade and the, the, the seizure would be in the front, the generals would be in front, the soldiers would follow, and they would have all the spoils of war and people would celebrate. But in the end, in the very back, would be the leader of the defeated foe. So too, Paul says that when Christ was raised from the dead, Satan himself was crushed, the head of the serpent crushed, in open shame. Why does that matter? It's not language Baptists use very often. We need to see that the crushing of the ancient serpent's head results in genuine freedom for the believer. One of the ways that we see this is that the, one of the great weapons of Satan is that of accusation. And when Christ crushes his head, the sting, the fangs of accusation um, are no more. One of my favorite stories in this regard is from Martin Luther. Um, I think this was in his table talk. He tells a story that Satan would say to him something like, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, and a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. It's the voice of accusation. Turn to Zechariah 3, you'll see this again, where Satan is constantly accusing the brothers, right? And you've probably heard that, the constant accusation. You're no good. If people knew what you've done and what your past is, you would never be good enough. It's accusation from the great accuser. And then Luther confessed that he would hear the voice of his accuser constantly. He says, but I respond this way. Well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I've done much worse than that, and if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mention, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed, but I am so wicked that I am unaware of having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for every one of them. His blood is sufficient, and on the day of judgment I shall be exonerated because he's, he has taken all my sin on himself and clothed me in his perfect righteousness. One of the things I find, particularly among younger generations, is that the, the things of accusation seem to sting too loud. Haven't you read your Bible? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a license to sin. This is not a license to sear our conscience. What it is, is the assurance that though I may fail, there is a Savior to pick me up. We talked about this with the youth today. That in Christ, I not only have salvation, I also have his sanctification, and I will forever have his security. No one can pluck me out of the hands of a loving Savior. Redemption is evidence of God's power and God's glory in the life of a believer that comes only by faith. So maybe you're here and you wish God would do something. He has. Maybe you're wishing things could be different. They can. Maybe you're broken and need redemption and see God work in your life. He will. But he does it by the cross. 
It is there we see Christ in all of his glory, all of his power, all of his beauty. For there he hung and he handled my sin, my sorrows, my wickedness, conquered death and hell itself, the power and the glory of God. You see, after he cast out this demon, Jesus points us to the cross. The Son of Man, it says there, verse 22, is about to be delivered to the hands of men, and they will kill him. Now, if the story ended at the death of Jesus, the reaction of the disciples would be rational. It says there, verse 23, they were greatly distressed. But that is not where the story ends. The transfiguration prepared them for what was to come. Exaltation through suffering. By the way, Peter learned this lesson. In his second epistle, he reminded us of this moment. We do not follow cleverly devised myths where we may known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see what Peter is getting here? The transfiguration unveiled for a few of us the power and the glory of Christ. But it was seen by the whole world from the cross. And for you and me, if it's the power and glory of God that we long for, and it is, it is found exclusively in the cross. So we do not worship a good teacher, a moral leader, a leader or a religious sage. We worship a Savior. So let us rejoice, for He has come, He has died, He has triumphed, and He shall return again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father,